All right, welcome back to Like Minds Podcast, an open journal for creatives and entrepreneurs. I am Josh Allen, joined as always by Adam Kuklich. That's right, guys. Today we have a very interesting guest. Uh, once again, I invited one of my friends that I went to China with in college to come on the Like Minds Podcast, and we really got some interesting perspectives on the startup world. Normally, Josh and I are talking about the startup world from the perspective of entrepreneurs and people who are starting startups, the founders, if you will. But uh, in this podcast, we really got to talk about the other side of uh, the coin, and that would be the investor's point of view. We, we touched on angel investments and uh, even venture capitalists. My friend Arpin works for a venture capitalist firm. So it's really interesting seeing the perspectives from that side of things and really what makes a good founder. It was a great conversation. It was great talking to Arpin. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people are, one, exposed to um, entrepreneurs and founders, if you will, from the standpoint of, oh, like I can relate to this person starting a business or uh, starting a startup. I think it's harder to relate to, uh, for most people, what an investor is, what an investor looks for. Uh, and what that whole world even is. So it was cool to talk to Arpin, who's somebody who is on that other side. He works with uh, a firm that does that. Uh, so it was cool to, to talk to somebody and get a little bit more insight on that. So yeah, we had a great conversation. Uh, we had a great time with Arpin. Hopefully we have Arpin back on. I really enjoyed that conversation. So I hope we, hope we have him back on in the future. Uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy this. So let's go ahead and get right into it. All right, guys, welcome back to Like Minds Podcast. Today, we have another guest. Um, definitely really excited to do this. We have my friend Arpin Ajmera. He is uh, someone that I also spent five months abroad in China with, and we have a lot of interesting stories there. Arpin, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you guys doing? Doing good. I'm doing great today. So uh, I know that after we've both graduated from Purdue, you've kind of gotten into uh, the not so much the startup side of things, but more so the investor side of things, looking at startups and, and other types of businesses to invest in. So tell me a little bit about your current uh, job and your current situation. Um, exactly. So, I mean, like, you know, in college, we both kind of like, you know, bonded over our entrepreneurial you know, interests. So after graduating, I started working at ZX, um, which is which was a corporate venture capital. Um, earlier this year, I moved to my current role, which is at VU Venture Partners. I work as an investment associate. Um, basically, we are, you know, early stage investors. We invest in pre-seed to series B companies. Um, our average check size is about somewhere from 100,000 to a million dollars for our initial investment check size. And then we can invest up to $10 million in any of the following rounds. Um, we were started by like Skylar Fernandez, Andrew Zalson. These guys were doing um, VC for more than 30 years now. Um, so it was like a great stepping stone to, you know, learn from really seasoned investors. We have a team of about five people um, based in, mainly based in San Francisco and New York. And we're re now opening up a new office in Hong Kong. Um, Interesting. We, we are agnostic of the industry, agnostic of geographic location. Um, so, I mean, you know, you can call us like opportunistic investors. Um, we invest in pretty much anything. We have five main like so, uh, deal sourcing teams. We have frontier, healthcare, fintech, enterprise and consumer. So that basically covers like, you know, all of the segments that are out there. So that's Interesting. something. Yeah. And, and just to first, for some of the people who might not know what some of this terminology means, you said you invest in pre-seed to series B. What exactly does that mean? Um, exactly. So, I mean, pre-seed is something, um, I mean, these are just like terms that are given by the founders to the rounds. Um, there's no like average, like a round size or anything that defines them. Like for a, for a space company, a seed round can be, you know, a $30 million raise, but uh, for a consumer company, it can be a $2 million raise. So basically when you start, when you start a company, you normally bootstrap it. Um, like, you know, you put up, put up a little bit of your own capital and then you raise a friends and family round. Um, after that, when you start raising institu institutional capital, 
that's when you normally call it pre-seed. Um, and then you just go from there, right? Pre-seed, seed, series A, series B. Um, you have like pre-series A, um, you have convertible notes in there. So these are just uh, basically like terms that founders give to their rounds just to, you know, um, have it more structured. Gotcha. Okay, so when we were in college, both you and I majored in mechanical engineering. Yep. Um, as soon as we graduated, you kind of went straight into this uh, this investor route. What yeah. was some of the factors that led to you getting into a position like this right out of college and maybe not even getting an engineering role right out of school? And also, yeah. uh, I, I didn't know that you guys were both uh, studying engineering. How did you go from engineering to working at a VC? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, I feel like it's not that odd. Uh, I mean, mechanical, I mean, me and Adam were anyways, like, amazing at mechanical engineering. So, uh, you know, um, it was just something that, like, didn't interest me a lot. I, I was doing it because, I mean, you know, Purdue is a strong engineering school. I thought I had interest in it. Um, you know, we, I wanted to move more towards the entrepreneurial side of things. So during my senior year, I started my own company called Plan For Me. It was a subscription-based business model aimed at the residents of Chicago to plan upscale niche activities. Um, so I, I pitched that to a couple of investors. Uh, it got some traction. We got some early customers. Uh, but I just thought that this is not something um, that's very scalable. But, you know, during that route, I made, I mean, I met with a lot of people in the New York area. Um, so I just landed up um, with a job at ZX Ventures. Um, it was more of a fate kind of a thing, if you can say so. Um, I was just introduced them, introduced to them through one of my friends at Stanford. Um, he he runs another VC. It's called Human Capital, um, and he introduced me to ZX, and I interviewed there, and I got the job. Um, I always had, um, like, I always wanted to work with startups. Um, ZX was more of an, a late stage investor, so we did more of like Series C, Series D. And as an analyst there, I was doing more of like, you know, creating balance sheets and um, like, you know, not really working directly with startups. So earlier this year, I wanted to make that transition. I wanted to have, you know, be able to see what's out there. Um, also, ZX, being a corporate um, venture capital, we only invested in beverages because AB InBev um, is like, you know, Bud Light, Budweiser. So we only invested in beverages through ZX, but at... At my current firm, I, I get to see a deal in, um, you know, a space deal. Like we invested in a company that's 3D printing parts in space um, versus, you know, investing in companies that is creating lab-grown uh, tuna um, and lab-grown fish and lab-grown milk. So uh, like doing early stage investing is definitely a lot more riskier than late stage investing, but it's a lot more... Um, challenging and it's a lot more fun and you get to meet a lot more people i guess so that's been kind of the journey that i've gone through that's pretty cool Interesting. So you uh you just started that startup your senior year um yeah so it, i mean i had the thing uh going from like the second later half of the junior year like once after we came back from china um and then it went on we pitched at burton d morgan business model competition we won there we got some funding um and then you know, senior year was pretty light year, like China helped doing a lot of courses there. So um, I had like a lot of free time. So we were able to like make weekly trips to Chicago, meet with vendors, meet with customers. Uh, a lot of startup work at the start, especially is like, you know, you guys have gone through it as well. It's a lot of customer discovery uh, to find out, you know, what the customer really wants and is your product the right fit for it. So we did a lot of that. Um, and we like, we had a guy who was a senior as well at Purdue, who was working on the tech side of things. So he was building the platform. And I mean, on the initial days, we didn't even focus that much on it. We were going to pretty much like manually, um, you know, do all of the stuff. But yeah, I mean, that that was kind of like the journey that we went through. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really interesting to hear that you guys were, you know, not really focusing on having a perfect product at first and doing a lot of things manually. Uh, I, I'm sure you know this, Arpin, and... Uh, Josh and I actually did a podcast on this before, but uh, the idea of minimum viable product and, and really being able to build something and, and just prove that you can generate some type of value very, very quickly so that you can then exactly. take that feedback and then iterate on the design. You know, that's, 
that's step one whenever you're starting a startup. And it seems like you definitely executed on that pretty well. Exactly. And I think we spoke about this earlier as well, right? Like, um, I mean, there's an analogy, like the MVP of a car is not like four tires, but it's a, actually a cycle. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a bicycle. So it's not, it's like you want to understand if the, if the person wants to go from point A to point B. And product is more of a later part that you can continually build and, you know, make, make it better. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like with the founders that we work, we always say that, you know, keep your cost low um, at the start of it and then just focus on the customer because that's where all the revenue comes from. And uh, like a startup is only successful if you get the money. Right? So mm-hmm. yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that analogy. The MVP of a car is not four tires. It's a bicycle. Yeah. It's really interesting. We can, I think we all, um, we're like entering into our 20s in a very interesting time in America where entrepreneurship was really cool. I think like, you know, a lot of our parents, um, the glory days may have been them talking about, oh, I was in a band once. I think uh, a lot of people are going to, from our generation, are going to grow up. You know, I started a company <laughs> once and that's going to yeah. be their claim to fame. It, it, it really uh, ended up taking on that uh uh, relevance in, in culture. Everybody yep. wanted to be an entrepreneur. With that being said, um, that's not an idea that, you know, just with people that you talk to that, that think they're into it, uh, the, the idea of MVP is not something that gets talked about. Everybody's talking about their big idea um, and what this revolutionary, you know, product is. And yep. in reality, you, you know, you, you got to start uh, you got to start somewhere and you just got to start making something. Exactly. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of younger people miss. I mean, it's something that, yeah, I, I feel like I am just now learning to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the foundations have to be strong. Uh, you need to have like figured out what your, what your niche is and you got to keep your costs low because like when, when, when things like COVID happened, no one saw this coming, but things like COVID happened, the companies that have like strong foundations and have, don't have like huge expenses are, are still going to survive this downturn. Uh, but like, you know, companies that were being very flashy and like spending a ton on marketing and not really on the product, they're going to lose all the customers. So um, like to early stage founders, it's very important, you know, to follow s- certain principles um, in order to become successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're uh, with the VC firm you work with, you said yep. you're an analyst? Associate. Associate. Okay. So yep. what, can you walk me through what it is you do like kind of on a day-to-day if you can, if you're, if yeah, I mean, like in, in short, right. It's just basically we look for com- like my most, my main job is to look for companies to invest in. So okay. I reach out to a lot of founders, um, a lot of founders, like my inbox is filled with a lot, lot of startups that want to, you know, are raising funds, gotcha. um, you know, creating relationships with other VCs, um, you know, helping, build value in the ecosystem not only for our firm but vc being a still i would say like relatively new ecosystem it's not um that um i guess it's it's not that prevalent yet so you know building value in the ecosystem so those are some things that we focus on i mean day to day a lot of things come up right like creating slides for let's say a particular uh, limited like a particular investor or you know just um, just doing some operational work, stuff like that. But majority of the work is just looking for investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. So if uh, so, if somebody ends up, um, uh, if a startup ends up getting investment from your firm, it's, yeah. it, you could be one of the first people that they end up talking to then. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think associates are very undervalued uh, because I, I think like yeah, that, for that's a fa- the big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, I think people are start, starting to realize that now, but. Um, they, they think that if they're not speaking to the general partner, um, it's like, it's not worth the time, but they have to understand that analysts and associates are the ones that are actively looking for, you know, investment opportunities and filtering. Exactly. And filtering a lot of the opportunities. Right. So, and as, as an associate, I want to do well at my firm. So if I get a great opportunity, I'm going to go and push it in my firms and bring it in front of the partners. Um, speaking to a partner, I mean, they get probably, if I'm getting like hundreds of emails, they're getting thousands and that's not even the first priority, right? So a lot of things can just slip through. Um, when a lot of the startups that uh, pitch to our GPs, he actually like, you know, sends it to me and the principal at our firm to have a look at it and then, you know, follow up with the conversation. So, 
for for startups out there i think it's important to have relationships i mean it's great to have relationships with the gps i mean they are the they're the ones who are going to make the call the final call but right. um if you can even speak to an analyst or an associate principal um that, that's good enough like if you're a good startup i think you will get through got you so arpan i have a quick question for you so whenever a startup and a vc come together to make some type of investment agreement i kind of want to look at this agreement from from two different sides really quick yeah. so we got we got the perspective of the startup and we yeah. have the perspective of the investor right so f- from your knowledge what is sort of the mechanism that both the vc may implement into finding new startups to invest in and then also let's look at it from the uh, startup side what can maybe some some good startups with some good ideas and uh, some good founders that are executing on those ideas what can they do to get themselves in front of uh, a good investor partnership um yeah i mean i think that's a great question right so earlier um like we all know silicon valley was the hub for startups all startups wanted to be in silicon valley because all of the investors were in silicon valley um right now the world has become a global place technology uh you know platforms like linkedin uh, seed invest or a lot of the platforms like having a online presence i think is very very important especially if you are not in uh, silicon valley if you're not in israel if you're not in uh, new york if you're not in those um hubs i think having online presence um creating a presence on linkedin on instagram on any of the platforms that you can i think that's great a great startup will always get funded that's my point of view because investors want to invest in great startups so whether you are in you know a small town in indiana if you're a great startup you are going to get funded and now there are so many startups that that uh, i'm sorry there are so many investors that are in indiana as well so it's not that hard um for the startup i guess to get in front of a vc having said that you know um i've had this question from a lot of the founders saying that oh we got rejected from this and that's why they're not a good vc they need to understand that like every vc has their own investment thesis so if we don't end up investing like as vu if we don't invest in your startup it doesn't mean that the startup is not good it just means that it doesn't fit with our investment thesis there there are going to be a tons of other investors that you know it fits with and it's going to be a good like it's going to be suitable uh, for their portfolio so it's a lot of iterations that you have to go through um so it's uh, you know like with founders i would say that if you if you're building something fundamentally strong um you just have to like you should not be deterred by getting denied by one of the pcs you just need to keep talking to as many people as you can um and yeah i mean you are going to find your match i've seen a lot of you know not that great startups also being funded so it's just a, like on average even sequoia has 40% startups that don't do well which is like the leading investor right so even they get things wrong so have, first of all like having if your startup is funded by sequoia it doesn't mean that it's already a great startup and if it's not funded by sequoia it doesn't mean that it's not a great startup um so you just need to like you know find the right investor and now because there's so much capital in the market i think it's important for founders as well to look for uh, vcs that are bringing more than just capital um you know you there are like a lot of strategic um value that vcs can add and i think founders should always look for that as well yeah i i think that's a really good point um a lot of people when they're first starting out in the startup world might think that you know the goal is to get the the $25,000 check from an angel investor or like a $50,000 check whatever but it's not the money that you're after when you're going after a good angel investor it, it's it's the the knowledge and the connections that the angel investor has and that he can offer to the to the team right exactly so uh i completely you know get get what you're saying there and that that applies also with uh venture capital groups but what are maybe some good characteristics of founders that maybe your vc looks for because sure someone can have the best idea in the world they could have the best idea for a company yeah. in the world but if they don't have a good set of founders that can actually execute on that that idea it's it's an absolutely worthless uh case to invest in right yeah. so what are some good characteristics of founders that that make uh investing worthwhile to to a vc Yeah so I I think I mean I've not been doing this for like I've just been doing this for one and a half years now and early stage investing where founders really matter I've only been doing it for like 
like earlier this year so not that long um so from my experience and from what i've heard from our gps and like you know what our um more experienced professionals talk about um like founders i think first of all need to be uh, i would say like they need to be collaborative and what i mean by that is like we we don't want founders that know it all like no one likes to know it all even like in real life and even in vc like right, right when you when you are having a conversation with a vc like we want our founder to be able to like learn from from their mistakes everyone makes mistakes and that's okay but to be able to learn from their mistakes and be able to take on others opinions i think is a very and i think probably that most uh, important characteristic of a founder apart from that i think um i think it's a mix right like you want the founder to be experienced in the field like for example if you're doing a healthcare startup um most health, like we we were reading a study and uh, most healthcare startups that are run by non healthcare um experienced founders don't actually do well actually they have like they are the worst performing because healthcare is such a expertise niche uh, industry that you like you need your founder to be from that sector and really have strong knowledge about that sector it's not enough that you bring on a cto that's experienced in that industry the founders have to be uh, experienced in that industry um so yeah i mean i i don't know what i can like pinpoint as a founder but i would say like you know be open to ideas um be uh, you know try out new things keep your cost low like all like we all love founders that are not spending too much um and not being flashy and being uh, cautious with their money and you know be nice to your i guess uh, vcs um so yeah mm-hmm. i guess those are some of the I, th- i think another another really important thing and this is just from the uh, all the information that i've come across in the last year and a half or so and that's tr- being transparent and yeah. transparency right like yeah. you don't want founders if it, i'm i'm just thinking uh, i'm an investor right if i'm investing in someone or something and they're they're telling me and they're giving me numbers that aren't an accurate representation of reality what does exactly. that say about the company and the founder right exactly. so i think i think just being transparent with your current situation monetarily speaking is is huge as well yep uh, yeah no i th- i think that's a great point like being um like founders that give us updates regularly are definitely like you know the founders that we like and if they were to go and start a new company those are the founders that we will get attracted to because we have had a good relationship with them uh, founders that we have to run behind to you know know what's happening in their company it's just uh, it's just uh, hard to deal with those situations at times so yeah no, i think that's a great point mm-hmm. i had a quick question um yeah. in regard you were t- you were uh touching on on it earlier uh that it's kind of changed as far as uh at one point you said if you're a good startup in indiana you could still get the investment yeah um and then you talked about how everybody was putting their startups in silicon valley cuz that's where the investors were my my question is uh, so you're saying that 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 may be changing already uh uh it could be changing I I wouldn't say it's changing like the the amount of I I'm not going to say it's not changing but there's still a ridiculous amount of uh investors in Silicon Valley don't yeah. don't mistake that but I think what he's saying is that you know you don't necessarily 100% have to be in Silicon Valley to exactly. get right funding but, so so my question uh my question is why why exactly does geographical location to the investor matter Yeah um that's a great question right so a lot of the vcs like we have been investing across the globe um so it's it's fine for us but a lot of the investors especially angel investors want to be close to their founders they want to have like you know a cup of coffee every month or something like that so that's why that's where it stems so, from so vcs actually so like the the gps at a vc will actually try to have a physical relationship uh, or in person relationship with the founders that they invest in yeah i i think so i mean like uh, it depends on how big the vc is how many investments they are making um if it's if it's like you know if you have invested in like 10 companies in a year you can meet with 10 people in a year right like you can have uh, relationships with them and i think it's important for a for the founder as well and as well as the vc to have a strong relationship at least with your lead investors so you know when you raise a round you have like probably anywhere from i don't know 3 to probably 50 investors coming in into that round um you can't probably like the founder cannot have a relationship with every single of the investors but at least with the initial ones and the big investors 
I think it's important for the founder as well as the VC to you know have a um, ongoing relationship with them. Yeah, and I mean, and why I said it's changing, right? So earlier, um, like, like I mentioned, uh, investors wanted to be close to their founders, and a lot of the investors were in Silicon Valley, and that's why Silicon Valley, like that's why all the startups wanted to be there. But now with the changing environment and more VCs coming up, firstly there are more VCs, um, you know, geographically spread. There are VCs in Indiana, in like south of the US, east coast, um, and just with the, like uh, like with COVID, like everyone is sitting at home. So even if my founder was in New York, I would still be talking to him over Zoom, right? So I mean, people are just becoming more adaptive to that, and like the with the younger generation now, you know, coming into pole positions. Um, so, so they are more open to using technology to be able to speak to the founders, and it's not always about just a, having an in-person re relationship. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I wasn't. Uh, I, I had always wondered that. Um, I mean, it seems like a perk, uh, but I, I didn't know that was uh, that's something that uh, VCs actually think about is is actually developing. Uh, yeah, I, I, no, I, think I think so. It does. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. Um, you know, sometimes when you think about uh, VCs and stuff like that, and just um, big investment firms, uh, I I think, and not not to say that I I think that all VCs, yeah. are like this, but you start to wonder is like, are some of these firms just just throwing money and 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 you know just playing the numbers game, and and it does does it already matter? So it's interesting to hear the. Uh, how much, uh, or to hear from at least from your standpoint, your your uh, your firm sounds like they're a lot. They they care to be hands on and and, uh, and involved. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for us, we are not that hands on uh, because we are like we are not the lead investors in any any of our right. initial investments. Uh, if we were to lead around, yes, then we would be a lot more hands on than we are right now. Um, mm -hmm. Why we are not hands on is also because we are a very small team making a lot of investments. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we are doing like five investments per quarter. So that's about 20 investments per year. Um, we already have 33 companies in our portfolio. About mm. yeah, 32, 33 companies in our portfolio. So it's just a large volume at this point. Um, so we're not that hands-on, but if we were to lead around, then with that founder especially, we will be um, hands-on. Even having said that, uh, we're not that hands-on, but if a founder was to reach out to us, even to the GPs, right? Saying that, oh, like with COVID happening, a lot of the founders reached out for, you know, advice or like how to go about certain things. So uh, we always make time for that. And like, you know, we, we uh, carved out time from all of our schedules to make sure that we were talking to all of our founders, whoever needed help. That's actually something I wanted to talk about. Uh, I wanted to know if the, if your fund had changed any of its investment strategy or investment perspectives due to the, the current COVID crisis and how that's, impacted businesses from an economic standpoint is uh are the overall principles of your investing strategy the same or has anything changed in the it's, near it's in exactly, the future i would say it's exactly the same right we were investing in companies that had strong fundamentals uh pre-covid and even post-covid so even with covid happening we do believe that we have invested in like companies that are going to be able to withstand um like however long covid goes for um, and so that's why we have not changed our investment thesis. We still look for the same things that we were looking pre-COVID. Uh, but the ecosystem, I think, is changing a little bit. Um, people are becoming more, so venture capital is the most, um, I would say, most risky investment uh, opportunity for an investor out there. So people have become, people have become more cautious about where they're investing. Um, so good startups are still going to be funded. But you know the startups that were on borderline um, about being funded and not, um, those are going to be a, it's going to be a little bit harder for them to get funded. Um, like Josh was mentioning earlier, like people were throwing money at startups, and that's what was happening at a point of time because venture capital had become sexy kind of a thing, right? So people who had money were just throwing at startups. Um, so there was a lot of capital um, in the ecosystem, and that's why the valuations were super super high. With COVID happening, a lot of those people have now pulled out. Even institutional VCs, you know, now we're becoming more cautious on what we, in what we're investing in. So with that, like, you can see that there's a little bit of a dip with the valuations of startups. Startups that were like, you know, valued when they were pre-revenue, startups were valued at like 30 million, 40 million, 50 million. They have probably now come down to more like 15 million and 20 million. 
and yeah so there is a little bit of change in the ecosystem but from uh, from our thesis no nothing has changed all right so to switch gears just a little bit um i just want to talk about something that's kind of been on my mind and i think a lot of other investors minds over the last few months and that is uh we know that the COVID situation has prompted the U.S. government to print an inordinate amount of money. They've been printing trillions of dollars. And this kind of behavior is really uh, unprecedented. We really don't know the ramifications of how this will affect uh, the economy moving forward, especially like one or two years down the line. And there's this idea that all of this money printing could technically uh, lead to some type of higher inflation rates, right? And yeah. any, anybody who's uh, a, a wealth uh, accumulator or someone who's trying to grow their wealth, they're, they're keen to the idea that uh, if inflation is present and it's, it's occurring at high rates, the last thing you want to be holding is uh, your native currency, like the, the US dollar or whatever. Yeah. So this, uh, this is really driving a lot of investors to really try to build their asset column more than their cash column. And even in some cases, people have really started to look at, uh, I guess, commodities that aren't necessarily directly linked with the stock market, stock market and the economic condition. So they've been looking at things like cryptocurrency, gold, yep. things of this nature. So I was curious, uh, has your fund or even have you as an individual been uh, looking into Bitcoin recently or, or any cryptocurrencies to potentially hedge against something like this happening? Yeah. I mean, cryptocurrency is uh, like, I, I don't know what to say about it. Like I, I've not been too involved um, in the technology. I think it's important for anyone who invests in Bitcoin or any of the cryptocurrency to actually understand what the underlying you know, technology behind it is. Because just by going, oh, yeah, Bitcoin, you know, you're able to, this is like that. It, it, it's like a, I don't know how to put it, but it's like a lot of people invest in it, but not a lot of people understand it. So I, I was looking into it when we were in China and I invested a little bit. I bought two mm -hmm. Bitcoins at that yeah, time. I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit yeah. and see if I could get you to, to talk about your unique situation. Yeah. So, you know, um, it was $500 at that time, Bitcoin. I bought two, um, just, uh, I probably got lucky. I didn't know what Bitcoin was at that time. It was something that was just coming up. I was reading a lot about it. I'd never went under to understand what the technology behind it was and what the implications are going to be. I just knew that it's going to be the next big thing. Um, so I could have lost a lot of money and a lot of people did. Um, I guess I got, like I said, I, I was very lucky that I got out when I got out and I got in when I got in. So, it's, I think, uh, with the inflation piece, right? like what you were talking about before, I think uh, for our generation, at least, it's a new thing. We've never been through our economic downturn. I guess you can say that we are lucky uh, that it's happening so early in our careers because, you know, now we know how to navigate through, mm -hmm. um, you know, the rest of the things. Like I, like last, like last podcast, you and Rahul were talking about, you know, saving up 30% of your income i don't really do that um and and i can really why i don't do that so i i completely agree with uh, people being you know saving up a lot of uh, saving up your income and there should be a certain percentage that you should be saving up as a rainy day fund but i think um, self-investment is also a kind of saving up uh, and what i mean by that is that you know like josh has started his own channel so he probably like did, I don't know, courses or like you, when you started coding, you bought a course. Um, so you were not able to put that money into your rainy fund, but you were able to gain skills out of it that you can now use to do, you know, something of your own or you can make money out of it. So I think in early stages when you don't have a lot of money, I think there's always a question of where, what's your cost of capital. Uh, saving it up is always good, but if you're able to invest in, in something that, you know, helps you to grow, Mm -hmm. and grow for your future income i think people should look uh, towards that as well like i did a couple of courses from harvard um you know those were expensive but i thought it was a great investment i could have put it up in my rainy day fund it was like four or five k or something but it, i just thought that it was a good investment to make at that time and i think um i am already reaping benefits of that 
so i think mm-hmm. investment can be looked up on that side as well um so i think it's a uh, with me particularly i've not been saving up but i think um, i've not been investing too much of because i just not had too much capital to invest in um mm-hmm. and even to invest in like private markets uh, you need to be accredited so i'm not yet accredited um so yeah i think um so so that leads me to the question what have you been doing with the the income that you do bring in where does that go yeah i, I think uh, um a lot, i mean i know like you live I, in new york right yeah yeah so that's, that's another thing exactly right so uh, it's it's it was expensive living here um i mean whatever i do did have a little bit of like the extra income that i was making from my previous job mainly uh, was i i spent a lot of it just self in you know investing it in myself uh in my well being um which i thought is very important because i i was working like from 9 am to like 11 12 pm mm-hmm. um, almost every single day so that was taking a lot on my you know on my mind as well as on my body so i was investing it on myself so that in the long run i don't have ill benefits of just trying to you know of the work that i'm doing right now uh, right now i save a little bit uh, i've been investing in like some stocks um i've been investing in telecommunication stocks in like the stock market um i do value investing um you know in like large cap stocks mainly and just do value investing so i've not been too um adventurous with what i've been investing in mm-hmm. but it's just been like safe investments a little bit of investment here there don't really take it out so not really had any returns on it mm-hmm. but um, and and yeah i think i think when it comes to you know saving up a rainy day fund as rahul and and i both mentioned um it's really variant on what your particular goals and what your lifestyle exactly. is and yep. what i think is i think that you should have some saved up just for Definitely. the worst case scenario right like if yeah. you lose your job what's going to happen are you going to yeah. have to move back to uh to nigeria or what what's going to happen you know yeah. so so you should have some saved up but that amount that you you have saved up is completely variant on your exactly. lifestyle and and your your goals at that moment in time but once you have that rainy day fund then i'm 100% with you i don't think it makes sense to just continuously store cash right yeah, because exactly. what's the opportunity cost of that yeah, right exactly it's a huge opportunity cost uh, yeah so i i completely agree with you like i have i mean i do have some uh, money secured in my like savings account that i know that if i if something happens if i lose my job i have like at least 3 or 4 months that i can live off of off of it um like you know so th- that's definitely there but once you're past that threshold i think it's very important for us to be uh you know for us to be smart about how we are using that money whether it's like investing in public markets private markets uh, investing it on yourself um you know so i think that's very sm- it's important to be smart because like you said right like if if i saved up 100 um like five months back the value of that is like 80 dollars or 70 dollars already just yeah. because of covid right like mm-hmm. i mean because once covid goes down like you will see all the prices go up like bars are going to be charging higher food is going to go up like everything is going to go up so whatever you are earning then i mean whatever you have saved up it's not uh, going to be enough but if you if you made smart investments when you had the money i think now you can now is the time that you can reap those benefits mm-hmm. and i think economic downturn especially if you do have the cash i think it's also like it this is probably for those who do have that you know that income already coming in that you can support your lifestyle and then you have additional cash because in this economic downturn i think instead of now like you know try to consolidate tried instead of trying to consolidate all of the income that you have it's now it's the right time i feel to invest because valuations have come down stock prices have come down so if yeah. you do have the money you know you should be investing now i think i think in this general period is is a great time to invest but i i know that no one should ever try to time the market because you can't time the market oh, you nobody can. nobody can effectively can. do it but exactly. for some but for some weird reason i i say this i preach this it's the investment ideology that i stand behind but for some weird reason man uh the s&p 500 at close to 3000 is just a little bit unsettling <laughs> to me at this yeah. this moment in time and yeah. uh for that reason for the past couple months i've i've kind of just been building up cash and and when that right opportunity does present itself i'll definitely deploy all of that you know exactly yeah 
I mean, I think that's very important, right? And I think I struggle with that too. Like I keep waiting, waiting, like trying to time the market, you said, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so in regards to like current uh, events, I, I wouldn't put it so much as timing the market, but when you make an investment, you, you have an idea of value. And, and I think yeah. uh, right now, like with what you said about the S&P 500, that just sounds like it's kind of overvalued for the circumstances, you know? So it's not so much a, a timing thing. It's just like, I don't even know if I feel comfortable getting into it at, at that price in these circumstances. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, one thing that people need to keep in mind whenever they are looking at the stock market, and this, this is where, this is what makes it a little bit more tricky than just looking at the stock market price. And, and what, what I'm about to say is that, the stock market price is not a reflection of what the current economic situation is. Rather, it is a reflection of what investors predict the market <laughs> will be. So the question is, well, how far out are you predicting? Are you thinking one, two years out? Are you thinking two months out? You know? So, but, but right now, I mean, I, by no means am I going to say an expert, but to me, it looks like the, the stock market is, is priced as if the, the economy is going to open back up just like a light switch, not going to have any repercussions from a, from a health perspective. And mm-hmm. all of the company earnings are going to go right back to what they were in 2019, which mm-hmm. doesn't exactly add up in my head. I don't think it'll be that quick of a, right. of a transition. And, and, and yeah. just with that thought, that, that's not you timing the market. That's you, you come up with a, a, a scenario in your head in which, well, then that's overvalued if, if, if you're correct. And, you know, at the end of the day, you got to go with, uh, you got to go with, with what you're thinking and, and, and make sure you're, you make sure you're taking in information from, um, you know, reputable sources. But once you do the research and you've come to your own opinion in investing, you have to stand by it. And, uh, and with that opinion, you might be in a situation where, you know, maybe it makes sense to wait because it, it just, it's not, it, you're not seeing the, the, the value correlate to what you see. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot of it is driven by human sentiment, right? So right. it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to predict. Well, Arpin, do you have any questions for either myself or Josh? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm wondering like, where are you guys, like, what do you, what are you guys doing in this, you know, COVID-19 situation in terms of like your economic situation? Are you guys investing? Um, how are you guys? What are you I, guys I doing? Can, I can start that. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm lucky enough to still have my day job. So I still mm-hmm. have an income, right? So that that's, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but other than that, I've, I've really been taking a lot of this time to, like you said, invest in yourself and invest yeah. in the company that, in my case, Siron, I'm trying to build that. Um, this has been a, an interesting time for Siron, and it actually happened at a pretty interesting, uh, an interesting time. And I say that because we were getting to the point with Siron where we were focusing on selling the product before it was developed, right? Yeah. Like, like minimum viable product in mind. Um, but it got to the point where like, okay, we have to develop a fully functional web portal for their, for, for our businesses, our restaurants and coffee shops to be able to look at the data analytics. Right. Yeah. Um, and we also didn't have a fully fledged, uh, terms of service, uh, location agreement and privacy policy that, so that was kind of on the back of our head as well. So being that we are in this industry of restaurants and coffee shops, obviously all of those have been closed down. So that's definitely hurt us from a a sales perspective. Um, But what it did give us the time to do is really look at our company internally and say, okay, what can we do right now? And and right now we can't really focus on selling to these businesses because they're, they're not open, right? This is an unprecedented time in this, uh, in this space. So we, we took this time to one, get all of the legal documentation that we need from a, a very credible lawyer. And uh, we also took the time to develop a fully functional web analytics platform that our venues can log into and see data analytics on their customer footfall data. Right. So, so we're, we're kind of treating this time as I made the analogy before to uh, the halftime at think of like a basketball like you, you used to play basketball yeah uh, think of like a basketball game right uh whoever comes out the first two minutes 
uh, after the halftime of a basketball game, it doesn't matter if they're down 10, 15, 20 points. Whoever comes out the first two minutes more tenaciously and more hungry, that's the team that's going to win after halftime. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of treating this this time as our halftime, and I'm, I'm looking forward to really hitting it hard um, when things do start to open back up. And we've even been talking to a, another startup in the area, the Chicago land area, and, and we're even exploring some potential collaboration points. So that's kind of yeah, where we're at. I think that's amazing. And that's something that we, you know, preach as well. Like this time can be taken positively as well. Like all of the startups that, you know, that we have been looking at, the, if you're not able to make sales, like this is not the time to put money in marketing, but rather it's time to put money in R&D, um, you know, and just hone on on your product that you have and what your offering is. So just spend time on that. And I think, yeah, like once things start opening up, I think there's definitely going to be an accelerated growth uh, just by like, you know, people all like working longer hours and longer days. For sure. And just moving forward, man, let's, uh, let's definitely keep each other in the loop with what we're doing. Definitely, a little bit yeah. more, uh, more phone calls, whatever. I, I'd like to do more podcasts with you, uh, Definitely. you know, but I think, you know, we definitely can can benefit each other with the knowledge that we have come across and yeah you know and i mean um even if like you know you guys want to invest in startups or anyone wants to invest in startups let me know um i really want like i have started this blog um that yeah, i think yeah. i mentioned to you I, i've not been For very sure. active on it right now but i like my aim there is to motivate gen z like you know people like us um to be a part of private markets, right? Like, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is like, either start your own company or like invest in companies. And um, like, I think th- this is a inflection point where people are going to stop working for, you know, those big corporations and like doing nine to five jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, the time is coming for gig economy. Um, so like I've been working on like, you know, what gig economy holds for us. Um, like I've been building up a thesis on that, but I think um, with even with most of like us not being accredited, I think there are a lot of ways that we can still be part of these um, these startups either by you know investing through crowdfunding platforms or would, would that through, be something like AngelList or or what? Yeah, I think AngelList still needs uh, you to be accredited, but there are okay. a bunch of you know um, other sites where you can invest. Through, um, I mean. No, I'm not by no means I'm like recommending anyone to invest in those ways, mm-hmm. but you could, and you know, you can also look at angel groups that syndicate a lot of their deals. So you can mm-hmm. try and be a part of that as well. Um, sure. And, you know, be supportive of different startups by like, you know, pitching up your free time for working for them and just being a gig worker as well. So I think that's going to help the economy and this is going to help them in the long run as well. That's uh, an interesting idea you uh it's interesting you're you're the only uh person that i've heard only other person besides myself use the term gig economy in a conversation uh so I, i'm really interested uh to to hear some thoughts on that the reason i i i was familiar with the term was so with uh you know being that i'm entrepreneurial i i want to start my own businesses and i want to you know that's that's how i want to make my money now yeah. I, you know, you had a startup and as you know, startups typically don't pay the bills like a nine to yeah. five. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth in the last um, five years. Uh, also, um, uh, uh, besides uh, Broke Boy, the media company, uh, I, me and my dad have a company where we set up after school programs. So I, I've just been part of, you know, businesses and, and developing businesses most of my life. Yeah. Um, the problem is, you know, when when your business isn't isn't providing the revenue to to pay the bills, you end up having to do something like uh, get a job. Yeah. Um, but then when you get a job, that ends up taken away <laughs> from developing. Uh, it does. In, in in some cases, unless unless you find, I'm not saying that there isn't a job that can work for you. Um, yeah. So I started looking into things like. Um, Postmates and DoorDash and things like that because I I realize I'm like, you know, it's not that and 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 this is the other uh, issue when you're starting your own company and you're 
you're trying to, there, there are times where I'm, I'm trying to avoid working a job because I, I have more of a priority on my own business and developing my own thing than I do having to go work for somebody else. The problem with that is people on the outside will kind of look at you like, no, you're just kind of lazy. You just don't want to work is, is what yeah. it looks like. And the thing is, it's like, no, it, it's not that. I, I would rather just work when I need to and not when I don't have to. Because when, when, I, when I'm working and I, and I also don't have to work and I'm yeah. working for somebody else, that's time that I want to be putting into my own business. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly. what gig economy presents to people. You can work when you need to. You can work when you need money. Yep. And I started realizing, I'm like, wait a minute, why? Why is that a thing that uh like humans should only work when they need to? Like yeah. if you what why are you working when you don't have to work? So I, I was um like recently uh I so I've driven postmates and Instacart and I've and I've tried uh things like that. And I just kind of keep it uh, you know, I, I don't do it full time and I don't yeah. do it all the time, but I, I it's nice to know that I, I always have it. So if yeah. I need 30 bucks. I know if I log on Dude. to Postmates, I can, I can, I can get 30 bucks. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I came. Uh, that was my experience coming into understanding what gig economy is. Yeah. And I realized the value for that, uh, the value for people like me in gig economy. Uh, what, what is your interest in it? Cause I know you were, you, you, you mentioned it just briefly. What is your interest in it? What, what do you know about it and where do you think it's headed? Yeah. And, and really quick, but Arpin, I also want to ask, uh, you also, brought an interesting idea regarding gig economy uh and how it may even apply to startups that that's an interesting idea right like yeah i mean so no go ahead with the question i I was gonna say uh like that that's an interesting idea especially for some very early stage startups who may not have uh the capital to pay for someone full-time right yeah they could potentially hire people as a gig worker right exactly like a yep. sales worker or whatever and there there are probably some some repercussions that come along with that like potentially if your workers aren't all fully invested into the mission that you guys are trying to accomplish yeah. and i could see some repercussions but even so that is an interesting idea and there may be certain places that gig workers can actually contribute to to startups you know i, I think i definitely you know completely agree with that and um i think like with with what i meant by gig economy was right like you know our parents spend a lot of like our generation of our parents spend a lot of their time working for these big corporations and that's why these big corporations became even bigger and bigger um and there's like it's it's kind of a pyramid right like there are 100 workers working the same number of hours as the guy who's at the top but he reaps more benefit of it than um, people at the bottom and and that's fine i mean i'm not blaming that the ceo is not doing enough work i mean he he deserves to be where he is he probably had the idea uh, and that's why he is where he is but um with my push for gig economy and why i bring that up so strongly is because i think um people from our generation i think they don't want to work 9 to 5 and that's just how um not not only with us but even the ones that are going to come it's just going to become more and more of that they they want to be able to control their own life they want to be able to work their like josh mentioned they want to be able to work on when they want to work not when they are being told to work and they want to work on what they want to do so i think with startups i think um, if if, for example like when we come out of college right now everyone all, all of us had only one thing in mind, right? Like get a job. Like we spoke about it, right? You know, where are you applying? Like which company are you applying to? And and th- that was the mindset. But that mindset is going to start changing because I feel like with gig economy, I think um, it just, it'll just become more acceptable in terms of like it's it's okay for you to be making a little bit less right now for the promise of making a lot more in the future. I think that mm-hmm. concept um, was hard to digest in the older days. Like, right, you know, our, our parents wanted to make right now, like they wanted to have a full-time job and have that security. But I think with our generation, with being, I guess, the possibility of being more adventurous, um, you know, make a little bit less right now, make 30% less, but at least now you have the possibility of making like 50% or 500% more in a couple of years. Um, so I think that's where I was going with the gig economy thing that I think more people are just going to be, um, pulled towards gig economy because that's where the human sentiment is going to take take them. 
and a lot more things are going to come so that you are able to aggregate this gig economy and what mm-hmm. i mean is like for example there can be a platform uh where you know you just sign up and you say that oh i'm a coder there's a probably like a big company who needs this coding project to be done mm-hmm. they put a price on it you take the project you do the project and yeah that's and it, right? i think we're already starting to see some of those platforms exactly. come up like fiverr or whatever yeah fiverr yeah. there's a real there's a real uh meaning behind uh there's real value in in that way of thinking about work because i mean i'm sure you guys will, will agree here but whenever you're working on something of your own or something that you are deeply passionate about or interested in and bringing your idea to life right yeah the propensity for you to actually want to work and start working and not only work but get into a deep state of work is astronomically higher than if you are working on something that simply is utilizing your logical ability of of thinking to perform tasks that you have zero interest in, right? It's extraordinarily harder to get into that state of deep work and meaningful work, you know? And it just brings, it just brings such a, such a dismal uh, view on, on how you spend your time on earth, because the work that you do on a daily basis, that's where most of your time is consumed. Uh, on on your time here so so i think i think gig economy really brings the uh the possibility for people to take that back and really be able to to engage into the things that that really they find interesting and i think that the aggregated increase of of deep and good quality work that could potentially come from that is big yep and Mm -hmm. and you know just to add to that point as well Earlier, um, the trend was that like low wage workers were doing more of gig economy work. Like, you know, uh, let's say, I don't know, a plumber or a driver, like they were the ones who were doing more economy. What we are starting to see now and a lot of apps that are coming up now actually help people who are highly educated, like who are on the top of, you know, the education or like the top of that chart do tend are starting to do more gig economy work. Uh, because their their uh, contribution is very valued, so they can get paid what they want to be paid. Let's say a lawyer, a doctor, like you know, a doctor can easily do gig economy work. They they don't have to be affiliated to a particular hospital. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a lot more. I think my where my interest stems for is that I want to promote that, and I want everyone to like be do what they are passionate about, and that's why I say you know be part of private markets and be part of um, you know either invest in them or like work for them. But also, um, just a lot of startups are already starting to come that promote this behavior. Like you mentioned, right? Fiverr is one that promotes this behavior. Like if you're a, uh, I guess if you're a, like a film producer and you just want to do freelance work, you can probably use that service. And this yeah. is just going to be a lot more like telehealth is coming up, which is also, you know, doctors are able to make more money of that. It's just going to be more and more of that. So I think um, we should all be vigilant and we should all, try and embrace and accept that it's it's happening and we should try and be a part of that. Yeah, I'm going to look sure. real quick. I had actually seen, I, I want to say it was Uber, um, but I, I, I want to say that Uber had a uh, an app that was basically, um, give me one second. It, it was, it, I can't remember what it was called, but I, I remember clicking through it and, and it was like, you could clock in like at just like, if there was a job that needed to be, to be done at a company today and just, they didn't have anybody there to do it. You could essentially just fill in that spot, even though if Whoa. you didn't work there, it, it was a, it was a, it was something like that. I can't remember if it was Uber that was uh, developing yeah. that. It's it's crazy. I mean, I just on that one, right? I saw another app called Wood Spoon, I think. Um, and they're basically like with COVID going on, like you can cook food at home, and um, that app just allows you to like order food from not only from like not from restaurants, but actually from like people people's houses. So like if I'm making lasagna, I can just make like five portions and like sell four of them. Um, okay. So that that's part of gig economy as well, right? You are letting people at home make more money. Um, probably by doing something that they love. Yeah, I, I, I just found it. Uber, uh, Uber Technologies Incorporated, Uber Works, find works that works, uh, find work that works for you. <laughs> uh, find work opportunities that fit your schedule and um, 
yeah, like uh, one of the screens here is you can select a food production worker, event services, assembly line, assembly line worker, like just these are like jobs that you would apply for and work nine to five, you know, and this is uh, this is looking like something like you can just log on like you do Instacart and, uh, and Postmates. That's yeah, cool. I mean, I, and, I think there's going to be a lot of scope for that. I think uh, people are going to be able to make enough money like doing these kinds of jobs as well. Yeah. And, and then conversely, I think it's going to affect employers, um, uh, you know, in 10 years, I, I don't think that employers will be able to get, uh, get away with this kind of brainwashing that like you would kind of look down at it down on if you worked somewhere and didn't take it seriously and didn't, you know, put an extra for the company because yeah. it was this idea that the company is what's paying you. So you need to put that forward. Give it extra. You need to give extra. Exactly. And, and now, you know, I, I think if gig economy continues to develop the way that it is, and, and this has always been my philosophy, if you're working for a company, that company needs to make sure that you're equipped uh, mentally and physically to do the best job and that you need to resource that person and work with that person and understand that person to get the best performance out of them. And it's not just this idea of, oh, I sign your check. You know what I mean? So you, yeah. you need to you need to put in 110%. That's just not the case. And, it, and it's never worked. The only, the only reason that it, it kind of exists is we in America allowed that narrative to be created. Yeah. That, you know, there's the idea of uh, hard work. Well, yeah, the idea of hard work is putting in 110%. Uh, but we overvalued it when it was for other people. We need to put the value back into working for yourself. Exactly. And I think a lot of that really speaks to just changing times because if you go back 30, 40 years, that probably was the case. Like if you got fired from your job and you've only done this one thing your whole life, it may be kind of difficult for you to get another job. So there's also that element, that psychological element of being afraid to lose your job mm -hmm. and really having loyalty to the, the company. I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think that just came about for no reason. I think that the, the environment and the circumstances dictated that way of thinking towards mm -hmm. work. But, but well, now I, we're starting, I, I was I, saying now we're starting to see the, uh, these, these other opportunities right. that maybe we can, we can start to slowly shift away from that way of thinking, you know? Right, right. I, I was also pointing out that it, you're 100% right that, um, that there just ended up being a situation where uh, you have that narrative and then you also have a person like that doesn't want to lose that job what that also created was uh, workplace abuse you know was uh, the opportunity for employers to manipulate um, mm -hmm. people because they know that they, they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to lose that job capitalism uh, at that, its finest <laughs> yeah right capitalism at its finest not saying that everybody does that exactly and, yeah and uh, not saying that every uh, employer is like that but um yeah, it's always been my idea that, uh, you know, just as I develop companies, I don't have anybody working for me now, except, you know, with my uh, with company Bright Nights that does uh, after school programs. We have instructors, but, you know, whenever I'm working with an instructor, I'm like, this, like, this job has to work for you, for you to be able to give me what I need, you know? Yeah. The, the job has to, it, it has to make sense for you. It has to, it has to work out and it has to be a logical fit for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think like there will still be people working for big corporations. And I think there should be uh, because a lot of, I mean, we get a lot of value out of it. But I think yeah, absolutely. Um, there's just going to be a like, um, like, like to Adam's point, right? Like, I think earlier, th there was a mismatch of demand and supply. There were too, too less jobs and too many people wanting those jobs. Uh, right now, you can like, no, before there was nothing like YouTuber. Like YouTube is a career now. Yeah. So be, yeah. people, if they don't get a job, they can like always start their own, you know, career. Like gamer, gaming is a career, right? Like esports is such a big thing. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there's a shift between demand and supply. So if you really want the person to be doing that nine to five kind of a job, you have to be giving them that, you know, the yeah. benefit of that, those resources. Now the employer is well, going to have to give 110%. <laughs> for sure. And uh, I think, I think a lot of things, a lot of good things can come from that, Josh. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I really look forward to the future and, and seeing all three of us and our own uh, respective ventures just thrive because I think there really is 
so much opportunity out there, especially in this strange, strange time that we just happen to be born in, right? Yeah. I think that we're incredibly lucky to, to be born in this time and, and really just take advantage of a lot of these opportunities that present themselves uh, throughout the rest of our life. And I'm excited for the journey. Exactly. I know I, I look forward to it and I mean, best of luck to whatever you guys, um, you know, decide to pursue on and hopefully everyone will get where they want to be. Yeah, for sure. Well, Hey, Arpin, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and it was great talking yes, to you sir. again. Of course, man, I do. It's always great. And I look forward to your next podcast and for I can't sure. wait to be back. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's do this again. And Hey man, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, you, me, Rahul, and Samed and really whoever else wants to be a part of that trip. I think we should go somewhere. I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's somewhere in the US. I don't care if it's in India. I don't care if it's in yeah, New Zealand. No. Let's go somewhere. <laughs> no, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, hopefully, maybe later this year, not even too long. Not too yeah. far away. Hopefully, man. I'm always do down. Always Perfect. down. Perfect. All right, man. All right. Good talking to you. Peace, guys. Bye. Take care.